And the longhouse system is overseen by women. It's matrilineal clan system. And those women choose the male leaders to represent the clan. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I catch up and I discover the reason for my billfold being shy of $20 this week. Then later on in the pod, Missy and I sat down with Philip Arnold, who is the author of a brand new book titled The Urgency of Indigenous Values and a Leader Within the Doctrine of Discovery Movement. It is a really moving episode that you're not going to want to miss. Stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing quite well, and you? I'm all right. I feel like we have a question to answer. <laughs> okay, let the question <laughs> immense. It's, it's the question we we asked right before we hit record. I feel like our audience should be. Oh, geez, are we gonna like let them into our? I mean, you <laughs> Maryland guys. discussions. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this intro going to be a Monet? Or a Picasso. <laughs> Missy, it's always a Picasso. It's always a Picasso. So that's the conclusion that we came to today, friends, um, as we, confession time. We actually just got back from having dinner tonight. We actually mm. cut out a little bit early, closed up shop, and went to dinner to try to decide how in the world to tackle this week's podcast, because quite frankly, the world is on fire. Um, and... I mean, not only it's on fire, there's a lot of craziness going on in the world, and it feels, unfortunately, a little bit reflective of 2020 because there's so much chaos in the world going on right now. And so many things that are so difficult to address. You and I have conversations on and on about the situation in the Middle East, but and it is so nuanced. And it's so complicated. complicated. so complicated. And... W- we, not we, I, am so hesitant to put anything on tape because of the sensitivity of, of so many. Yeah, but Anyways. I, no, no, but, but, but I think that is a, an honest assessment where a majority of our listeners, a majority of those around the world are because they understand the complexity of these issues and the history of the Middle East the tension that has existed for decades within the Palestinian and Israeli uh, conflict, and they don't know how to decipher or interpret the events that they have witnessed over the last two weeks. And so we just kind of sit numb because it all is so heavy and so heart-wrenching and devastating. It's just... It's so, so difficult. I would take issue with one thing. I hope it's not numb because as we get information. Well, no, we, sit, more, we sit in our numbness. I yeah. just feel like we're all trying to work these Agre- things agreed. out in our minds. You and I included, and therefore are being very protective of our words that we're putting. 100% in, agree. That we're yeah. cementing. So we kind of over dinner decided that we, we're just going, everyone in our listenership is probably inundated with information, with stories, with the atrocities, with the tragedy that are happening. So we just kind of started looking at some, some fun things to talk about, maybe as a bit of a reprieve. And so I'm going to start the episode with a confession that I haven't told you yet of something oh I did God. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. 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 Remember, remember audience Picasso is happening here. (laughs) Okay. So, um, and I'm going to tell this story now. I've saved it because you can't get legitimately mad at me in front of everybody else, right? Oh, sure. I can. I can't vocalize (laughs) it, but they can feel my anger rising. So yesterday I did the thing that everybody wishes they could do each week. And I left home to go attend a middle school football game. <laughs> Indeed you did. Right? Yeah. Okay. 
on my way out the door, I knew I needed two things. Well, not more than two things, but I knew I needed uh, $5 to get into the yes. football game. And I also had like a few random items to pick up at the grocery store, mm-hmm. like straws or one of those and yep. deodorant or whatever. So I thought, oh, genius. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going by our neighborhood Walmart and I'm going to grab my groceries and some cash to go to the game. Genius. Right. I'm on board so far. Go, okay. Keep going. Okay. So I go to Walmart. I get my few things. I'm in the checkout lane. A friend calls. I answer the phone. What are you doing? So we're chit-chatting as I'm checking out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was all great. Leave Walmart. I get halfway to the f- football stadium, which is about 20 minutes from The my middle home. school football the game. The middle school gotcha. football game, right? Armed with my deodorant, which could probably be shared amongst the middle schoolers in the audience. <laughs> you sent pictures. I totally understand. Right. <laughs> Halfway there, still talking to my friend and realized I forgot to get the $20 that I got out of the bank account. <laughs> so some random Joe is now $20 so wealthier I because of your generosity? frantically expletive expletive got off the phone with my friend <laughs> and realized the next exit went to our bank because I still had to have cash. Yeah. So I, I exited that highway and you know, turned to go to our bank all the while calling our neighborhood Walmart because I sure didn't want to call you. <laughs> and two phone calls and 15 press this for this and that for that. Finally got a hold of, of someone. I was like, listen, I got cash out. I forgot to get it. Can you see? She's like, what's the register number? I had my handy dandy receipt, gave her the register number. She went to look. I was like, okay, there's hope that somebody turned in this $20. A good Samaritan, the goodness right? of humanity. A good Samaritan, right? Yep, gotcha. She came back to the phone. She's like, it's it's not there, and nobody turned it in. So I proceeded to get $20 out of our bank account. So $20 is now lost forever, which would be a funny enough story. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> it goes on. <laughs> Except this is the third time I've done this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so you just like randomly pull cash out of our account and like leave it for, I mean, you're, you're ultimately passing it forward, right? This is the third time, but it's only the first time I haven't been able to recover it. And only the first time you've told me about it. Exactly. <laughs> so... Thank, you know what? You need to be thanking me right now because for <laughs> Do a, I? For Do a, I? I think the guy <laughs> that followed you in the line needs to be thanking you. <laughs> for like a brief moment, I had considered getting cash for the football game and also cash we needed later this week for um, the, the cleaning crew. And yeah. so that would have been a whole lot more that would have been lost forever. So it was only $20. <laughs> So what you're saying, <laughs> I should be thanking you yes. for, for, for for this situation. Okay. So okay. that's that's my confession that I have sat on now for well over 24 hours because I there's knew so many hell marys that you needed to be doing <laughs> right now. If I did this the first time, I did this. The I think the cashier saw what I had done and kind of chased me out of the store. Like, ma'am, ma'am, you forgot your money. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so that was my first time. The second time we were traveling um, and I had to run to the store and get cash. And so I did this again, the same kind of thing. And I realized it and ran back in and thankfully someone had turned it in a good Samaritan. But yesterday, in fact, in our like Northwest side of town, someone took the money. Well, I mean, as they should, because, well, you know. Yeah. So anyways, there's my confession. First world problems, or hash, sorry, hashtag first world problems. We're now $20 poor. Um, and so I ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to give to the <laughs> Randall Foundation. As a matter of fact, we do have Because option. we, apparently, we give away money all the time. Not But if you would like to give to our October giving campaign, you like how I worked that in? Oh, wow. That was very impressive. You can visit goodfaithmedia.org and participate in our giving campaign. So anyways, that's my confession. Well, well, that is a good confession. Right? I Uh, mean, I held on to that for a while. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've held it on 
three times <laughs> over the course of several years. It's, it's true. It's true. So what else have you got for us that's like fun and non-consequential? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's been such a heavy couple of weeks. Lots of craziness going not only in the world, but in Congress. But I did find a story that you found quite interesting and it has to do with a frog. So before we tell the story about a frog, I didn't realize you're going to pitch it back to me, but I will say this. I have found the key for those of you lady friends out there who are cold natured or I mean, man friends who are cold natured. I have found the ultimate deterrent for having your male boss or male coworkers enter your office and bother you and mansplain to you throughout your work day. Oh my gosh. Okay. So do tell. There's probably so much problematic about oh, what so I just much. said. It, we should probably talk about the Middle East and we provide less hate mail. Exactly. Anywho. So to, so it's mid-October, right? It's that time where it's of getting a it little is. bit crisp outside, yep. right? And so you know what I automatically Mornings are do, cold, right? evenings are cold, so go so on. I walk in my office, I close the door, and I turn my space heater on. <laughs> so today, I happened to post a picture on social media just that my space heater was reporting for duty, like salute, right? Yep, I saw it. I, apparently you did because a little while later you cracked the door open before you entered and said, how hot is it in here? Because it's such a freaking sauna during the winter. So you weren't even going to come into my office. I'm like, oh, I have stumbled onto something. I mean, I've got to get rid of my sweaters, my jeans. I got to put on Bahama shorts. I do remember this. And a tank top just it's to go in your true. office so you cut, you, in the dead of winter. Because your office is upstairs, mine's downstairs. Right. So anytime you come up or down to, you know, chat about something and my heater's on, you'll sit in my chair by the door and you just beat up. I beat up with sweat. Like I can't stay in here anymore. So pro tip, yes, if you want to keep the hot natured, boss or co-workers who might I don't know mansplain to you during the day out of your office just a little space heater by your feet works wonders but that leads into the next story that you sent me doesn't it <laughs> well I hope it doesn't in every office situation but go ahead well not in an office situation but it's sort of relatable again we should have talked about the Middle East Picasso Picasso <laughs> Picasso go ahead right. cut that ear off <laughs> So apparently there's this thing that female frogs do. Let me find it again. Called tonic immobility. Do you know what this is? No. This is legit because it was a CNN story that you you found and sent to me. And like, ha ha, this is funny. I'm like, we need to talk about this. So apparently a female frog who is being approached by a male frog will fake her death to get him to leave her alone <laughs> and to the point yes. where she will like stiffen up and the frog will, the male frog will believe that she's dead right, and leave her alone. Yep. And so you watch, if, if you want to Google this, it's a CNN story. You can see the video of this female frog who, yeah. And the male frog leaves her alone. It was hysterical. It was so funny. <laughs> and I mean, I, I shall not say relatable, but it was just. What? <laughs> it was funny. I shall not say it's relatable. So, I think the parallel or or the um, sermon illustration, if we shall bring one to the show, is that she only reawakened or responded when another female frog was introduced into the, into the <laughs> container. Then all of a sudden she... <laughs> I'm not sure what the parallel is here, but I'm pretty sure we can draw some sort of conclusion. Oh, I'm quite certain. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what else of fun, lighthearted, first world problems news can you... Well, I, I think I do need to correct my faux pas because every artist out there in the audience is saying it wasn't Picasso it was Van Gogh that you're thinking about who cut off his ear I so. didn't say anything about cutting it off an ear I'm just talking about aesthetic <laughs> exactly yeah. Aest- I just I just misrepresented the artist so I apologize for no, all that send your mail to Mitch at <laughs> goodfaithmedia.org no I'm just talking about the aesthetic here it's yeah. likely going to be a Picasso ear or no ear. Yeah, true 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 so okay so the other story that I had was out of Portugal. Apparently, the 
FA, who oversees the Global Football Network, which is for us American soccer, has decided the importance of showing sportsmanship within the game. So besides a yellow card, which is caution, Mm -hmm. and a red card that is you're absolutely out of the game, you've committed a foul that's so heinous, 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 say it together, heinous, (laughs) heinous, that you can no longer play, they have introduced, and hand of God, the white card. (laughs) What is a white card? Missy, if you exemplify the ideal of being a sportsman within the game, you are now issued a white card. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Why? I think it's wonderful. That is so dumb. Okay, so when you when you play a game with somebody, yes, like I'm pretty competitive. Like your no, goal? No, 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 no. You're not pretty competitive. You are very competitive. Your goal is to obliterate your opponent. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Right? Okay, but let's clarify. I'm talking about a game, right? I'm not talking about in in life, in truth, in a game. Trust me, I have played plenty of games with you of skip bow of everything, and Scrabble, you yeah. I mean, you you obl- obliterate me. Yes, because, because that's the I goal. don't care. I don't need a white card. I just need the W. That's <laughs> all I need. The yellow and the red cards are there to make sure I do it somewhat ethically, <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? <geez. laughs> Right? Uh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so much to unpack there, but go right I ahead. I think I probably need to stop talking yeah. now. <laughs> no, you, no, you're right. So, so, so I, you're not a fan of the white card? No, I, I mean, I have not read the story. Maybe there's a good reason for it that I have not considered yet. Um, but my first reaction is, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no acknowledgement of sportsmanship. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, is, that, is that what for the juice the juice boxes and uh, uh, orange pills are for after the game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's your consolation is you get snacks at the end of the game. Okay, but no, you if, it, when you're on the pitch and you're playing the game, you have one goal, and that's the W, not the white card. Okay, well, I don't really know how to segue that into the Doctrine of Discovery. <laughs> well, you could, but it, it's going to make me look real it's bad. It's going to make you look really bad. <laughs> I'll let the audience decide on that. <laughs> but you and I sat down with Philip Arnold this week, uh, who's a professor at Syracuse University. He's got a brand new book out titled... The Urgency of Indigenous indigenous Values. Uh, Got a conference coming up that we're attending uh, as Good Faith Media in December talking about the doctrine of Christian discovery. It's a great conversation. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like you're a fan of it. I feel like you just kind of threw me under the bus. I I so threw you under the bus. With that last story, knowing exactly how I would respond. Yeah, I knew where this conversation was going, and yes, And then let's talk about the doctrine of discovery. (laughs) Yes, thanks for that. All right, so all of you out there who like the white card and all of those who don't, stay tuned. We've got a great interview coming up. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, (laughs) uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media. It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Philip P. Arnold is the Associate Professor of the Department of Religion at Syracuse University, as well as a core faculty member of Native American and Indigenous Studies. Philip is working with Syracuse and the Doctrine of Discovery nonprofit to host a December conference titled The Religious Origins of White Supremacy, Johnson v. McIntosh, and the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. Philip's most recent book, The Urgency of Indigenous Values, is available right now. Philip, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. 
Thanks, Mitch and Missy. Good to be with you. Now, Philip, I do have to admit, I went, we had a conversation a few weeks ago working on uh, another project, and you told me about the book. I ordered it. I got it in hand, and I'm showing it to you. The audience can't see it, but it is highlighted, got all, has all kinds of little markers in it. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's been uh, been decades in the making, as I like to say. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a labor of love. Good. Well, it, it is well-worn in our home. <laughs> so, so Phil, well, I want to begin by asking a couple of general questions. And first, the first one is just, what was your motivation for writing the book? And then second, help us understand why you chose the word urgency in the title as it relates to Indigenous values. Yeah, all good questions. So there's a personal reason and a professional one. So the personal reason is that I'm married to a Mohawk Haudenosaunee woman. Uh, we have Haudenosaunee children. Um, and we've been married almost 40 years now. And, and we've been working together on a variety of issues uh, uh, around um, Native American indigenous uh, traditions. And um, the professional reason really is that um, I'm in the academic study of religion and really critically reflecting on the on the area of what's now called Native American or indigenous religions. And we live in the heartland of the Haudenosaunee, who are better known to your audience probably as the Iroquois or Six Nations. Um, the Iroquois is the name that was assigned to them by the Jesuits. Their own name for themselves is the Haudenosaunee, or people of the Longhouse. And so being in this area, um, teaching in this area, uh, physically being here, um, and I'll talk more about that uh, as we go along, but, you know, just being here and teaching in this area is... is um, is why uh, you know I felt the need to to address these issues in the book. Um, the urgency piece has two meanings as well. Um, so, you know, of course, we're in the era of a number of different urgent matters mm -hmm. facing us. Um, you know, the the matter of uh, environmental catastrophe is with us always and um and who better to address that issue than indigenous peoples who've been here uh you know before the ice age um so so those you know that's one urgency and i feel like their values their value system can be um can be embraced more fully than it has been in the past and um secondly i think um for me it becomes a, a method you know, on how to interact and collaborate with indigenous peoples. Um, you know, the question is, well, what do you talk about? You know, when you're dealing, I, I don't really want to think of them as my um, informants, you know, about their traditions. I really want to have a conversation about some of these urgent matters that we're facing. And I think, um, so therefore, focusing on matters of urgent mutual concern, you know, mm -hmm. like climate change is one way to have a good conversation interculturally, you know? And so, um, so on the one hand, we have urgent, urgent matters that we're addressing. And then also on the other hand, it becomes a way of really working together. Yeah, I'm so glad that you uh, included the term uh, urgency in the title. You also refer to it quite often within the book, especially in the first parts of the book when you're talking about environmentalism and creation care. You know, as a citizen of the Muscogee Creek, one of the things that I have learned over the years coming to understand my culture and my ancestors uh, more so than I did growing up is that as I learn more about them, what I've discovered is that it seems as though their way of life really coincides with a lot of what, as a Christian at least, what I read in the Bible, especially in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. This indigenous tribal type of mentality uh, that you know is not self-centered, is not human-centric, and we got a question about that later on in the pod, but it just... This idea that 
for, and I'm going to use a, a really uh, coded word here that Christians often refer to, this idea of salvation. The idea of salvation is that there are looming problems on the horizon, and we need to have this salvation uh, come and rescue us. And if you look at the indigenous peoples, this urgency may provide us a way to live that is sustainable, uh, that we can replicate here today. And I think it's needed right now more than ever. As I said, I live in the heartland of the Haudenosaunee, and this is um, uh, the central fire, so in the in the homelands of the Onondaga Nation, which is the central fire of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, uh, which is a confederation of six separate nations. But, um, um, and their, um, their relationship to historically their relationship to Christianity has been uh, a rocky one to say the least. Um, Perhaps uh, with this conference, we can begin to have a conversation Mm -hmm. about how um, Christianity historically has been used, has been weaponized essentially against native people. Um, And, and, um, and that becomes a kind of problematic uh, feature of how we address um, these intercultural dialogues, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I think I think um, uh, the the urgency I'm, I'm we're discussing then in the context of the doctrine of discovery uh, is illustrated in various moves like in boarding, you know, the, the residential boarding school system or other things that have been utilized. Um, it's a tough history. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not, well, I can give you a story. I'll, I'll illustrate this with one story. For example, um, you know, in 1756, um, Jesuit missionaries coming from, they were representatives of France, and they came into Onondaga Nation territory and they built a fort on the sacred Onondaga Lake, right? But they came with them, with them, they came with the the deed to sec- 600 square miles of Onondaga territory. And so, so they were forcefully asked to leave just 20 months later or so in 1658. So um, this is recorded in the Jesuit relations as um, uh, a, a very differently than the oral tradition of the, of the Onondaga nation, right? So of the, of the Haudenosaunee. And so, um, and since that time, there has been no Catholic church on Onondaga Nation territory. So we know something very disruptive happened. But at this conference, and we've been having a series of conversations with Catholics and Catholic leadership, we're going to have a a bishop's conference. We're going to, Bishop Lucia here, a local Catholic bishop, has been um, uh, very active in the area of the doctrine of Christian discovery, has been advocating for this to be on the on the docket so to speak of american bishops and so we're going to have a bishop's panel and it's going to be responded to by an onondaga clan mother so you know this this to me presents we have to look at the stark history mm-hmm. you know uh the excesses of that history as a way towards you know a kind of conversation for the future right so that becomes like one illustration of what what can happen and i'm i mean um we'll get more into the doctrine of discovery but i think that that um that's the sort of thing that both um christians and indigenous peoples and onondaga by and large are not christian people um that they that that they can come together right and and have a conversation not only are they not christian people one of the things that we do in this deconstruction and this process of decolonizing the conversation is to um is to redefine the misconceptions 
that are out there as we impose our colonized ideas upon other cultures. One of those in particular, Phil, is the idea of indigenous religion. You stated in your book that that term alone is an oxymoron, because a lot of times we look at other cultures and say, oh, well, that is their religion. But right. you claim that you've not talked to one indigenous person that has, an, has a term for religion. So if they don't practice religion, what are they practicing, Phil? No, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, they they they, they do have longhouse, right? So longhouse is the organizing principle. So, for example, I mean, just to give you some context here. So there's like, what, 574, 75 uh, federally recognized Native American nations or tribes in the country today. And um, uh, of those... 575 it keeps going up too because they're new new nations recognized from time to time so so um of those 575 really only three are still run by their pre-colonial or pre-american system of government that is not by the bia or bureau of indian affairs so I know this sounds a little like a diversion but it's important so um those three are all Haudenosaunee um, they are governed by their ancient protocol called, uh, you know, that brought that was that came with the great law of peace called the great law of peace. And they're uh, they're organized around their clan system at the longhouse. And so the longhouse then is the center of all um, political, um, economic, um, you know, um, uh, if you want ceremonial activity among uh, for the Onondaga, and the Onondaga therefore um, are not, they do not accept money from the federal government. For example, they do not have casinos and that sort of thing. They're not run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, so, um, and the Longhouse system uh, is overseen by women. It's matrilineal clan system, and those women choose the male leaders to represent the clan. So it's this radical democratic uh, system of governance. So when I would bring my, bring my class down to the Onondaga nation, for example, my native American religions class or indigenous religions class, they would always insist that what they have is not religion, right? It becomes a little embarrassing, right? So, mm-hmm. So if I'm, I'm I'm an academic in religion, they they say uh, we don't have religion. Um, so then what? Where's what? How do we how do we communicate cross culturally with one another? And that's kind of what I'm trying to lay out in the book. That um, um, and by the way, this clan based system connects them to the land. The Onondaga are known as people of the hills, and they live in their traditional territory, which is tie, ties them to these, you know, ancient drumlins uh, in this area of the world. So, so those clans uh, oversee, you know, all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of ceremonial activity. But um, we can have a system or a, a conversation about values, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we organize the Scano Great Law Peace Center, which I hope you'll be able to see when you come up. Yeah, I do. Because, so. yeah, because the Scano Center, it's it's uh, uh, Scano means peace, but it also means peace that's only possible between people when they are in proper relationship to the natural world. And so we decided right away that we were going to have um, uh, uh, a values approach at the Scano Center. I know I'm going, I'm moving around a little bit, but for example, they, they, the Thanksgiving address, the Onondaga and Haudenosaunee don't pray. They don't refer to it as prayer. They refer to it as an address where they address, you know, the, the non-human beings of the natural right. world that are responsible for our well-being, our our survival as human beings. So, so, so some of those, those concepts, right. In, in terms of your, your process of decolonizing our conversations about religion, 
um, it's very important that we acknowledge that, you know, that what what looks like prayer isn't seen that way. It's right. not a petition to a deity or something. It's a an address, yeah. a, a, an expression of gratitude, right? And so, and so, uh, and what happens ceremonially in the longhouse is not religion because it doesn't have to do with faith though so much as um, uh, giving something back to the natural world, to the spiritual dimension of the natural world, to creation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in a way that that will what promote a more viable future, right? So I, I think there's. I was trying to lay out some of those ideas sure. in the book, so we could get to. Um, to a sense of what values are yeah. and, uh, and, and why they would be, why, how we could incorporate some of them into, you know, the modern contemporary world. I was telling Missy about the part, uh, specifically about the part, or we were talking about it, about the part when, uh, you mentioned that the women are the ones that elected the leaders and the chiefs. And she thought that was a really good idea to implement today. <laughs> I mean, that's Oopie. how my house runs. I'm not sure about yours. That's, that's, how, that's how my house runs too. So, yeah. <laughs> so Phil, it's so funny that you started talking about the federally recognized tribes. Um, you said the 575, that was actually part of the next question when you said only three operate under the pre-colonial clan system. So just briefly Revisit that. Tell us why that is, and and why. Yeah, no, it's 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 it, it is a mystery. I'll say because, um, you know, um, well, I'll just say, and I, I I'm not saying anything that they don't wouldn't say about themselves, but the Onondaga are very stubborn people, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, you know, as a lot of native people are, you know, as we know. No, so, no, no but, words from you, Missy. I'm, I'm not. Saying <laughs> <a word. laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Nothing personal, you know, I think, you know, it's, it, but it's, but, um, but, um, so, so the Bureau of Indian Affairs was, was created essentially um, to oversee Native territories, right? And when in 19, I think it was 24, there was the Citizenship Act. Uh, the U.S. bestowed on all Native Americans U.S. citizenship. Well, that sounds really good in a way, but the Onondaga said, no, we will not be citizens of the United States. And in fact, they went to Michigan, I'm sorry, went to Washington, D.C. I've seen the documents, right, where they say, you can't make us citizens. In other words, they stuck to this notion of sovereignty, which is, after all, in the Constitution of the United States. You know, those, those treaties are are fundamental in the in the constitution of the united states and that and that uh, that system of sovereignty uh essentially the onondaga said if we give up our sovereignty those those treaties will be null and void and so we're going to stick to our sovereign status mm-hmm. and it was there that way for example, on an uh, Onondaga faith keeper, Orrin Lyons puts it this way: "You can't have a treaty with yourself." So, if 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 they were to become citizens of the United States, then they would not be able to maintain those treaties. So they're so stubborn. Mm. For the last hundred years since the Citizenship Act, they've been traveling on their own passports. They have their own documents. Really, when they know. travel internationally. Wow. Um, and and so the Haudenosaunee Nationals team will travel on their own Haudenosaunee passports. And if they can't, if the if the countries deny them, as they did in 2010 in Manchester, England, they won't go. So uh-huh. it's 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 as I said, these are very stubborn people, and they've kept to their sovereignty um, in the face of really some very extreme measures. So. So, um, so I think that's why the Haudenosaunee have been so instrumental at international um, meetings like the United Nations advocating for the rights of indigenous peoples, where other nations, you could say, can be controlled by the United States, 
they can't be, you know, they, they've proven that over the last hundred years. So, um, so yeah, the, the three nations, I failed to mention the three nations that have not accepted a BIA government are Onondaga nation. So I've been talking about the Tonawana Seneca, another, another nation of the Haudenosaunee and the Tuscarora. Um, so those three are all part of the Confederacy. Wow. Well, Phil, I've got one last question for you before we turn it over. And this has been a fascinating conversation. Again, there's so much in the book that I would like to talk about, but we just don't have time. Plus, we don't want to give it all away. We want people to go buy the book uh, and they can pick it up uh, wherever they uh, purchase their reading materials. But there's one moment in the book that really brought uh, tears to my eyes. And it was the conversation about the 1613 two-row wampum agreement between uh, the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch. And there's this beautiful image of a belt and it's a, a stream and two uh, canoes rowing down the stream. And I just thought it was a beautiful image of coexistence and respecting one another as human beings and as cultures living harmoniously as you move down this journey uh, of the river. But unfortunately, uh, we know history, we can read, and uh, it seems as though one of those paths often tends to go over to the other to dominate the other and impose its belief systems on that. In fact, you write in the chapter, pay attention, expansionist cultures of Europe created an intellectual tradition that placed human beings at the center of the world and assumed that human beings have the ability and responsibility to know the universal truths of all things. Phil, is the idea of a human-centric worldview the prime contradiction among the Anglo-European cultures and the indigenous cultures? I think you're spot on. That's exactly right. I mean, um, uh, you've said a lot right there. And I think the two-row wampum, so there's a long tradition of wampum, goes right back to here at Onondaga Lake and the founding of the Great Law of Peace. Um, and the the um, you know the the wampum then came the wampums that came out of that had to do with cons- consoling condoling people that are in grief um, and and uh, the the Haudenosaunee in that in that sixteen thirteen uh, wampum belt with the Dutch were saying we're we're acknowledging your grief your the difficulties of the lives that you've lived and being here in this place. And, and we want, uh, we want to remain um, together in this place, but you have to be able to respect the non-human beings that are support our lives here together. And so the Haudenosaunee and their canoe, travel down the river of life and the Dutch or the Europeans in their boat travel down the river of life side by each and don't interfere with one another. Right. But that could be said of all other things as well mm-hmm. to leave, um, to leave the world as pristine and as, um, as healthy as we possibly can is the way to have peace between us. I love that. Um, and that's that those three rows of those three white rows between the two purple rows mm-hmm. are um, called the covenant chain. And that covenant chain is that we need to work together for a more peaceful world, uh, work together for, for a more proper and viable relationship to the to world world around us, and those two oh, those three rows are peace, freedom, and together forever. I love that. So that 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 to me becomes a way of working together. Now, something else you said: this kind of hubris of humanity, right? <laughs> that we're all having to grapple with right, right. now in various ways. Um, I think is is really the the issue here. Uh, I see it in the university, for example, where academics feel as if or think they can understand all things, you know. Um, and to me, that becomes um, 
uh, an, a roadblock for really working collaboratively, you know, because if you think about it, if you work with people, if you work with indigenous peoples, rather than report on them, right? If you work with them, then um, you're not in control of the data, so to speak. You're not in control of what you can say. Right. Um, you have to work together. So knowledge, therefore, is produced together. It's not produced just out of the minds of some, you know, academic, you know, uh, scholar or something like that. So for me, that becomes then a working, another facet of the working method uh, of collaboration that that I think is was very is very important to me and for our colleagues. Well said, sir. So, Phil, how can our listeners learn more about your work and about this conference that's coming up? Well, uh, you know, we have a website called doctrineofdiscovery.org, and that, uh, you know, we just put up the schedule for the conference, and I'm very happy that you all will be part of the conference and doing podcasts there. Um, we are going to have Robbie Jones uh, as one of the keynote presenters, uh, Anthea Butler, who's someone else who's been working fervently on what she calls white evangelical racism. You know, that's the title of her book. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we have, we have uh, a lot of different constituencies coming. A lot of Christian people who have repudiated the doctrine of discovery. Um, and so a number of churches, a number of Christian organizations have repudiated the doctrine of discovery. About over 300 have repudiated the doctrine of discovery. So on our website, we have a number of different readings or different uh, small short readings. Um, just last week, we put up a sermon by an Episcopal kind of an activist, Christian activist, who was talking about the doctrine of discovery in in his church, right? That was he was addressing it to the congregation, and so I asked him. I said, "Can we just put the sermon up on?" I mean, it's not something I would normally right. do you know, in an academic setting, but there you go. You know, we yeah. have you know biblical quotations and all these kinds of references. So, so I think I think um, you know we're trying to make that uh, uh, a resource for a number of different people. Um, we also have a lot of information on the conference, the schedule and other things. So, and the registration link, um, I have to mention too, that it's sponsored by the Henry, Henry Luce Foundation, um, which is a, you know, a, a major uh, granting organization that, that has been very active in this area of religious religion and racism. Uh, in the past. I don't think they would have been like 10 years ago. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of people moving in this direction. And what we're doing with the conference is trying to connect the dots. There are environmentalists working on this. There are lawyers working on this. There are indigenous peoples. We're going to have Maori people, Sami people, uh, people from Brazil, all kinds of folks. So I think the website is the best thing. And then, of course, the book, um, you know, the book is our most recent um, attempt at, at trying to get this message out. Well, Philip Arnold, thank you so much for joining us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, you know, you're the third guest that we've had on over the last few months. We had Betty Lyons on earlier, and then uh, Robbie Jones oh, was on last week, and 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 now you talking about this very very important topic about the doctrine of Christian discovery and its ramifications even today. And I appreciate your addition of adding the urgency of us uh, retaining these indigenous values. The book is the urgency of indigenous values and you can pick it up now and phil we really look forward to seeing you in syracuse in december but before we let you go sir missy's got one last question that she wants to ask you so phil as you know our tagline at good faith media is there's more to tell so in light of the work that you do in our conversation today what is your more to tell that's such a good question. <laughs> there's, I you know I'm a, I'm a bit overwhelmed at the moment. It's there's so much work that needs to be done, and I think uh, it has to be told by all of us. Uh, this work has to be has to address all of us where we live, mm. and um, 
And um, I, I, I just welcome anyone out there that's listening to come to Syracuse, New York, Onondaga Nation territory, to learn more about the Haudenosaunee and really all kinds of things related to, to the American identity. And that's the message we're trying to get out, right? Um, that that uh, we are more, uh, American society is so much more indigenous mm-hmm. than we realize. Yeah. Let me say this, dig deep where you live. Ah. That's a that's a good piece of wisdom. Phil, thank you so much for joining us and Good Faith Media. We'll see you and the others in New York at Syracuse uh, on the campus of Syracuse University in December for this incredible conference. So check out the the conference and the website, doctrineofdiscovery.org, as well as Phil's new book, The Urgency of Indigenous Value. Thank you, sir. Great having you on. Well, Missy, I don't know about you, but as somebody who really thinks this stuff is interesting, I really enjoyed our conversation with Philip. I really enjoy just examining the way that systems that were or have been in place for our entire existence that we never questioned should be questioned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, the Doctrine of Discovery is one of those. But there were two things in particular in the book and in the interview that stood out, I feel like, to both of us, as we've discussed um, a few moments ago. One being that uh, Native Americans don't really have a word or a concept of religion. Right. So I want to talk about that for a little bit and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, I, mean, I think you're exactly right. First, acknowledging that we covered a lot of material. There's a lot of content that we discussed, but there's so many things that are tangible and relatable to what we're dealing with now. One is this notion of religion. So when you and I define religion, we have this conception of what that means. A lot of it surrounds worship. A lot of it sound, you know, surrounds how we view the world and our evangelical fervor to win people for the cause of Jesus Christ. So I would say it's two things. It's your belief system, what you can and cannot do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's how you're getting into heaven. <laughs> yeah. Like those are the two found the two principles. Uh, you may want to reverse those two well, in their priority. I, I mean, yes. <laughs> well, one one leads to the other. They're very closely interconnected. Yeah. But that's kind of the two principles we were brought up in is what you believe and how do you get into heaven. Yeah. So there, go ahead. Well, there's this celestial ending that is overarching and affects everything that we do within this world. For the indigenous people, there's not this concept of religion, but this concept of existence. And how do we as human beings exist within this symbiotic relationship of how we would define the living and Mm non-living? or the natural and unnatural. And so that is what is really fascinating to me. And I can see that also playing out within the biblical narrative, because the biblical narrative is filled with this tribalism and this very indigenous understanding of the world, not corrupted by the European idea of capitalism and everything that is negative about the world we live in right now. So I, I just really love that concept of not defining ourselves by our religious convictions, but more so defining ourselves as humans living within a cultural system as we understand it. Well, but just living, being part of the world, yes. being part of the existence of our planet of our solar system of all the things that we exist within how do we responsibly care for that and for each other top to bottom you know that we're not domineering the land or the creatures that are in it but we're trying to be respectful and how do we care for the totality of existence and i think that is probably one of the biggest advancements that I have made personally 
And when I say advancement, I, I really do mean this as personal advancement. I understand that a lot of people have a, a lot of other thoughts and views on this, and I respect those. But for me, I remember standing in front of a crowd one time with our dear, dear friend and our prayers and thoughts, and I don't mean that in the most tritely, tritely way, uh, Imad, Imad, Imam Imad and Chauncey. And I said to the crowd and pointed to Ahmad and said, I realized I was at a different venture in my faith, not my religion, but my faith, when I stopped seeing Ahmad as a competitor for souls mm-hmm. and started seeing him as a brother. Mm-hmm. That acknowledging that we both have different cultures and quote unquote different religions. As we define those as humans, Uh, you know, we have created that. Yeah. But we have this symbiotic relationship of, of a created being Mm -hmm. and that we need to acknowledge our humanity and our plight within this world because there's so many more commonalities we have as human beings and even within our faith and quote-unquote religions that bring us together. So we're going to circle back to that in a moment. I have something to share. I have another thing to share with you. Okay. <laughs> another confession? How much money did I lose this time? Sort of, but not really. Um, because I want to touch on, I know you you really were very moved by the the two, um, what is it? The, the belt. Oh, yeah. The two uh, Rowampum. Rowampum belt. And yeah. so I want, the treaty I mean, between the Wonashani and the Dutch. I know you want to talk about that for a moment before yeah. I circle back. So tell our listeners about more about that and what it meant to you. The first thing that struck me was this was a concept presented by the indigenous culture. I'm having a hard time vocalizing this because so often indigenous cultures are seen as nomadic or Neanderthalish, Mm -hmm. uncivilized. Mm -hmm. And that's the narrative we've been taught. But then you encounter stories like this and the Honanashanis who come up with this idea and present it to the Europeans who are, in their view, culturally superior to them, right? religiously superior to them, economically superior to them, superior to them in every way, who says, we can coexist. Mm-hmm. Let's create an existence where both of us are traveling down this river of life together, side by side in our own canoes, respecting each other's cultures, respecting each other as created beings, but acknowledging we're on the same path. But there's a problem. What's that? The problem is, and I don't mean to be disrespectful but the white culture always drifts in the other lane to dominate the river they have to own the river they can't share it so as much as we kind of began this episode with we we were really trying not to get in the weeds with the, the situation in the middle east for many reasons it's but before we came on to record you were up here setting up and I have to tell a little backstory which if you're a regular listener or follower of good faith media reader of any of our material this will be a refresher for you but as you mentioned earlier our friend Imad Imad and Chauncey who Imad and Chauncey who grew up in Beirut as a Palestinian refugee Mm -hmm. and who was taught in school by a Catholic nun 
whose name translates in English to mercy. Mm-hmm. And he survived the Shabbat massacre. Correct me if I'm getting any no, of the details wrong. 100% right. Where the Marianne Christians came in and slaughtered his people. Mm-hmm. And as a teenager, he hid for three days to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And like you've said many times before, he was primed to be radicalized against Christian people. And Judaism. And Judaism. Because Absolutely. the state of Israel allowed that sieged, to happen. Yeah, the so, city of Beirut to allow this to happen. But he, and we use him as an example so many times. And like you've said before, he is the best example of Jesus you've ever seen. Yep. And I wholeheartedly agree. But he said, the Jesus that mercy showed me was not the Jesus that these perpetrators brought into my land. Mm-hmm. And he chose mercy, and every day he chooses mercy. So fast forward, he is now here in Oklahoma. That's how you two connected. And he's the mom. And every social justice um, ministry here in Oklahoma City that that the Muslims run is named Mercy, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So as we're getting ready to record tonight, and... We had talked beforehand about we were just going to try to keep it light and not get into the the horrificness that's happening in the Middle East and the conflict. Um, I had not played my Wordle yet today. <laughs> oh, a Wordle. So I had to get that done so I don't disrupt my streak. Well, right? of course, yeah. I mean, you got to do. I mean, there are priorities. There is your quiet time. <laughs> right. Ex- oh. Wait, what? Your meditation and then no, Wordle. There's your Wordle. I didn't get Wordle done today because somebody started texting me before I got out of bed this morning. So I was getting that Wordle completed today as you were getting set up again. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I feel like sometimes the universe, God, the creator, the spirit sometimes just speaks. And do you want to take a guess as to what the Wordle answer was Let me today? see. And Let I'm me not, roll through the wait, I'm not giving any spoilers because we record a couple of days ahead of time. Yeah. So, um, so it's not probably $20. It's not no. Van Gogh or Picasso. I'm going to go ahead and say it was Mercy. It was Mercy was the answer to Wordle today. And I just like got teary-eyed because I thought with everything that's going on with this interview that we had today, talking about the Doctrine of Discovery, talking about it's all about our desire for whatever reason to dominate and own land and claim territory, mm-hmm. which is so fallible in our thinking. And I don't have answers to the specifics, but all I know at the end of the day is that mercy and love and two canoes going down together in life need to somehow prevail. I don't know how to make it happen on a global scale. All I can do is make choices in my daily life that help propagate that end. But anyways, I just, I wanted to share that with you, that that just happened. And I feel like it was a little bit of a divine moment. I really have nothing to add except amen, amen, amen. And you just said it all. All right. So do you. <laughs> well, Missy and I may both have tears in our eyes, so we're going to step away and wipe those tears away. But our prayers are our hope for the situation in the Middle East, for the situation here in the United States is that mercy prevails and that love and understanding and hope and mutual respect for each other's cultures can be the predominant ideal for who we are as human beings. And I want you to always remember that this was brought to you by the indigenous cultures of North America and in, in, in indigenous cultures around the world. This is the importance of and urgency of discovering indigenous values. But I also want to note that um, related to this, that Imad did post today that 
they have lost four members of their family in Gaza mm-hmm. during this conflict. And so I definitely want to be sure that our listeners, that we lift them up in prayer for comfort and for peace. Yeah, I mean, we lift, I mean, we know Jewish families who've lost family members and friends in the massacre that took place uh, last Saturday. And we also know Palestinians who've lost family. It's just another reminder that, it's another reminder that if we allow the systems that are prevalent in our world to dominate our understanding of how the world is constructed, then oftentimes destruction and death follow and pain and agony and tears follow. We have to find a better way. Right. And as you said last week, you know, sometimes our tears are the only prayers we can offer. And I feel like we're still there. I had hoped that wouldn't be the case this week. I hope it's not the case next week. But right now that's kind of still where we're at. So let the tears flow. Let your prayers be lifted up. And may you have a blessed and hopeful weekend. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.